obviously there are wonderful highs when you when you're able to treat babies in in utero that have a potentially lethal condition and turn it around and you at the end of the process have a well mother and a live and well baby that's a wonderful high but of course there are also lows associated with that Hello and welcome to Conversations in Fetal Medicine, a podcast that hopes to share some of the wisdom and experience of people working in this brilliant field. My name is Dr. Jane Curry. I'm a consultant in obstetrics and fetal medicine. Think about the coffee room conversations you enjoyed with a trusted mentor. There are some great educational materials out there, especially since the COVID-19 pandemic, but as a subspecialty trainee in fetal medicine, this was the kind of thing I really wanted to listen to for inspiration and motivation when times were more challenging. We hope to speak to a range of people, some of whom you might have heard of, perhaps even your fetal medicine heroes, but also some people whose names you don't know, as it's not just about niche medical celebrity, although I do love that too. Right, hello, welcome to Conversations in Fetal Medicine, Professor Mark Kilby. Hello Jane, thank you very much for inviting me this afternoon, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, It's it's a great pleasure, this is um, really exciting really excited because this was a slightly unusual situation because actually you listened to the first episodes and got in touch with me to say that you enjoyed it I um, and I, I was a bit cheeky and asked if you would, you would come on it um, but no that that was really nice of you to do that so thank you very much. No well it was good to hear it's always good to hear perspectives for, from people that are have been through their careers like Tim has and reflecting back on practice I think it's always useful and you learn a lot from hearing from people. Yeah, definitely. So some people listening will know exactly who you are and other people won't know who you are. So if you could just tell us a little bit about yeah, who you are and what, what your role is. Yes. Um, so until uh, last August, I was uh, a full-time member of the NHS working duly as a clinical academic. So I was a professor, the Dame Hilda Lloyd Professor of Fetal Medicine at University of Birmingham. And I held an honorary clinical consultant post in fetal medicine at the Birmingham Women's and Children's Foundation Trust. And I've been in that post really for the last 28 years or so. And then I wish to change my role slightly. And after conversations with different people, I was appointed to the Medical Genomics Research Group at Illumina UK in Cambridge, which also um, house out of San Diego in the United States. And I'm employed there now full time as a, the principal senior clinical medical scientist. And my role really is to facilitate um, new technologies in genomics for patient benefit. So it's all about research and nothing to do with selling things or marketing. I'm I'm more to do with research and I work with a very talented group of people in Cambridge and the US. I still keep my links with uh, the Birmingham Women's and Children's Hospital. I still do a a genetics, joint fetal medicine genetics clinic there, one virtually and one face-to-face, so it's twice a month. And I'm still involved in research, so I'm an emeritus professor of fetal medicine at the University of Birmingham. So my role has changed. I haven't, like Tim, retired. <laughs> I've just changed a little bit for the time being. Wow, that sounds really, really interesting. It's quite a big transition, presumably, between the two roles. What, what's that been like for you? 
It's not been as difficult as I thought it would be. I think, obviously, you're working full on in a clinical post as a consultant, uh, both in obstetrics and and fetal medicine, and also half of your time as a clinical academic means that you're involved in all of the things that clinical academics do, like obtaining grants, completing research, writing up papers, teaching medical students, doing postgraduate research. So I miss that for the most part. That's a quite full-on job, and it was and is a great pleasure and honour to interact with patients and to care for their pregnancies and their unborn babies. So I miss the um, intensity and doing that job, if you like, full time. But on the other hand, this has allowed me to, if you like, change directions um, slightly and also to not be so full on, if you like, to use that term, in from a day-to-day basis. I'm still working hard, but the NHS and universe, being a university academic has its own pressures, many of them enjoyable, which um, are not so intense now. Yeah. But it's the missing the day-to-day patient contact. And actually, I think as well, the number of conversations that you have as a doctor. I mean, you know, from the time that you come in the morning and you park your car, walking back into the hospital, you meet all different people that work in a hospital uh, saying hello, stop for chats. And then right the way uh, through your day, you're having conversations, either professional uh, conversations, clinical conversations or academic conversations, but also conversations with everyone around you. So obviously, I don't have quite so so much contact as that now. So that's yeah. the, the biggest thing that I miss, if I'm honest. Yeah. Okay, thank you. It'd be really nice to go back to the beginning. And when you started fetal medicine, yes, what was it that drew you to it? How did you get into it? I suppose um, my interest in obstetrics and gynaecology, really, for the most part, was kindled at medical school. I really liked obstetrics and gynaecology because I think it drew together these medical and surgical specialties. And that's the sort of thing that I wanted to do. And it was very hands-on. And I remember during my attachments as an undergraduate, I delivered in those days between 1979 and 1984, 50 babies. So I did 50 normal deliveries, which is which wow. even then was quite, <laughs> uh, quite a lot. And then I did my final year elective where I trained in London at Guy's Hospital. We had a final year elective, which usually um, sent you abroad. And I did a, an attachment in obstetrics and perinatology, which as it was called then, at Johns okay. Hopkins Medical School in the, the United States in Maryland. And so that really cemented my, my interest in obstetrics and gynaecology. And then I, after house jobs in London, I went to work in Nottingham and was on a rotation as an SHO and then a clinical research fellow working with the late Malcolm Simons and Professor Fiona Borton-Pipkin in a a research post, which both developed me clinically and also introduced me for the first time as acting as a clinical registrar in obstetrics. And during that attachment in Nottingham, I was fortunate enough to have a full-time research placement, which allowed me to do research onto platelet function in preeclampsia, and I was awarded an MD at the end of that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, you can see the way that the, uh, my career was going. There's academia going in um, tandem with obstetrics. 
Yeah. But it was really the, the first time I was aware of fetal medicine as a subspecialty, apart from when I was in the United States, was when I worked at the Birmingham Women's Hospital, first as a, a registrar. And then I did a I was appointed originally as a clinical general senior registrar. So I was doing obstetrics and gynecology um, and also a lecturer. And then once I was uh, one year into that, uh, Martin Whittle was appointed as professor of fetal medicine in uh, Birmingham. And we had a number of conversations and it seemed like a really interesting career. And I was appointed as a subspecialty trainee and a clinical lecturer. So all the way through both my pre-accreditation uh, training, but also through my work as a, as a subspecialist, I've worked as both a clinician and a clinical academic. Yeah. And I think, again, with fetal medicine, it was the, the realisation that there are two patients in obstetrics, but you will fully be able to realise managing both of them when there are disease processes going on. And that was a really fascinating thing. Of course, accelerated, you know, by ultrasound, which, you know, has revolutionised the way that we manage obstetric patients and the unborn baby. And all of that was fascinating. And then seeing the way in the early 1990s that fetal therapy as a specialty started to take off allowed me to kindle an interest in that. And I was really, really fortunate. I mean, Martin Whittle allowed me to go off to Toronto to do a, and I was an MRC clinical training fellow, and I did some research with uh, Knox Ritchie, Greg Ryan, and Robert Morrow at Mount Sinai Hospital on the changing fetal cardiodynamics during intravascular neurotransfusion. And I was there for a year, which again was working in a, a different academic and clinical environment before finishing off my subspecialty training and coming back to be appointed as a senior lecturer and consultant in, uh, in Birmingham. Yeah. So there are lots of influences, I think, during the time I've mentioned, you know, the mentorship that I had from uh, people who directly trained me. But of course, especially at that time, fetal medicine, both nationally and internationally, was relatively small specialty. So I got to know and people were very generous with their time and advice. Uh, Many of the, the great names of fetal medicine, I mentioned Martin Whittle, but also in this country, there was Charles Rodek, people's Nicolaides, and then internationally, I've mentioned people in Toronto, but there are other people like Ken Moyes in the United States. So lots of lots of interaction, which uh, just reinforced my my excitement for the specialty and the academic application of work within maternal and fetal medicine. Yeah, I'm getting quite interested now and it's not something that really occurred to me until recently is how much of fetal medicine history is so recent and it's really lovely that there's so many people who know how it's evolved yes <laughs> and can talk to that and, yes. and it's sort of in your experience what, what are some of the things that you've that you find interesting about how it's evolved or that's really struck you about what's changed over time i i think you know that i obviously i've heard some of the other podcasts that you've recorded and i think it, it isn't an underestimation to say that ultrasound and the developments in ultrasound have really revolutionized certainly fetal medicine and fetal therapy and so the developments of the initial 
developments in ultrasound that took place after the last war in Glasgow. Then it took about 20 to 30 years, really, for real-time ultrasound to evolve and to gradually develop over the 30 or 40 years, really straddling the time when I was appointed into when I've worked as a consultant. And the image quality of being able to visualise the fetus now is fantastic, much better than it it has been before. And along with that, that's allowed people to see the second patient, the fetus, Mm -hmm. and then to think about ways in which pathogenesis of some very morbid conditions that can affect the fetus can potentially be altered by interventions in utero. And that really started with Lily in the early 1960s, focusing on rhesus disease, amniocentesis to assess the degree of red cell destruction and hemolysis, and then intraperitoneal transfusions, initially under ultrasound guidance, and then coming through right to modern day intrauterine transfusion. But the, the understanding and develop understanding of the pathogenesis of this different conditions and allowed the um, development of in utero treatments that uh, change uh, outcome through the placement of shunts in utero or recently to um, fetoscopic laser ablation for twin to twin transfusion syndrome, which is an example, if you like, of minimally invasive fetal therapy. And then starting in the late 1970s, but now running right the way through to modern day, open feet surgery with the correction, the management of spina bifida in neutro and the potential risks and benefits of that procedure. So you can see that there is, on one hand, relative minimal fetal therapy by using cordocentesis with needles uh, for, for transfusion, modern instruments such as fetoscopes, which are relatively small caliber to minimize uh, the problems of breaching the amniotic membrane and the risks, risks of um, aminorexis and preterm birth right the way through to open fetal surgery. And then between that, of course, is um, the management of babies with severe congenital diaphragmatic hernia and transient tracheal plugging, again, a relatively minimally invasive procedure. But I guess that if you're asking me what actually is happening and changing, I think on one level, the fetoscopic and the open fetal surgical procedures are concentrated in relatively few centres internationally, but they are becoming more evidence-based and the rationale for using them, the risks and benefits, well-defined, and uh, and that's helping to improve outcome for babies. But I mentioned um, the management of rhesus disease and fetal anemia, and obviously that's because the pathogenesis has been so completely understood right from the beginning, it was one of the major success successes of um, in utero therapy. And although the majority of babies these days are treated by uh, in utero intravascular transfusion with a cordocentesis or intrahepatic vein transfusion, increasingly now there is research and development going on into medical means of ameliorating the effects of transplacental antibody transfer and red cell destruction. And there's some very, obviously, you know from from working in UCL and in Bristol, 
the IVIG has been investigated over the years, and that's been a relatively non-specific transplacental blocker of IgG. But now there are many more very specific IgG blockades, and there are studies which are going to be reported this year, which actually shows that this could be a game changer because mm-hmm. it prevents, and in the majority of cases, severe anemia developing, but also avoids even the uh, the relatively small risks of chordocentesis by placing a needle into the uterus and into the interamniotic cavity and the risks of preterm birth associated with that. So on one level, medicine and therapy has become very invasive. (laughs) But on the other hand, we're increasingly now seeing research and development and therapies which may well start to change that so that there can be medical management and new technologies can help to help that happen. And that's one of the areas that you've been involved in It has. I was, uh, I was involved in a, a multi-centred uh, international study. Again, Ken Moyes in the United States was the principal investigator for this, but using the a very specific blocker of IgG transport receptor blocker. And in particular, the proof of principle study was in women who had had very early onset fetal Mm -hmm. uh, anemia, you know, that required transfusion around 20 weeks of gestation. And and because of that, they had relatively high risk of fetal demise. And that was one of the entry criteria. And by using this therapy, it seems to have changed it around. And these, these babies have avoided transfusion. But... The data for that will be uh, reported at the Fetal Medicine Foundation in uh, a meeting uh, in the summertime. That's very exciting. <laughs> wow. I mean, it's so important, isn't it? And, and one thing that we haven't really touched on much is that you were very much working still in maternal medicine as well, weren't you? Yes. Yeah, so I started off when I was a senior lecturer. When I was working in, in maternal fetal medicine, I, I was involved in a, a weekly complex obstetric Um, antenatal clinic and then I also did the joint uh, fetal medicine um, or maternal medicine renal clinic and the joint maternal medicine rheumatology clinic as well so I really when I first started out in uh, maternal fetal medicine really did do both of those things but as the fetal therapy side of it became more and more time consuming when I set up the service for fetoscopic laser ablation for for the treatment of twin to twin transfusion syndrome there and went to work with Eveville in Paris to learn that technique and to bring that back to Birmingham. Obviously, that started to take up more and more time. And then I stepped back from the maternal medicine side of things. Yeah. So, yes, to start with, I did both. Yeah, no, it was was just thinking about sometimes outsiders perhaps may accuse people in fetal medicine of just only thinking about the the fetus and not thinking about the whole picture. And I I just wonder how much of of that background you bring to it is really important thinking about benefits for the the woman as well. (laughs) Absolutely. I think it's, I think it is a subspecialty that focuses both on the mother and the baby. And I started off by saying that we have two patients in obstetrics (laughs) and in maternal fetal medicine that that is sort of almost emphasized. And obviously if you're doing um, work at the cutting edge of fetal therapy, you still have to remember that many of the therapies that you utilize carry hopefully a small risk, but a risk. 
to the mother. And, um, and often there are comorbidities as well, which need to be managed. So, you know, it's very much managing both mother and the baby. Yeah. What was it like to set up a, a service, setting up the invasive therapeutic procedure service? Because that's that must have been quite a, a big deal for sort of managers and funders and people yes, worrying about I, what you're up to. <laughs> well, I think I, I was fortunate, as, as I said, um, that uh, Martin Whittle, who was uh, appointed in the early 1990s in uh, Birmingham, came and brought with him the skills of, uh, if you like, invasive fetal therapy. And so as a subspecialty trainee, I was very much immersed in learning to do those direct invasive therapeutic techniques. And so I had and built up over the early part of my appointment as a consultant quite a lot of um, experience in those kind of invasive uh, techniques. And I think as well, um, we were fortunate in that the management of twin-to-twin transfusion syndrome by fetoscopic laser ablation was reinforced by strong evidence base by a randomized controlled trial. And mm. um, when those data were being completed, that's the time that I went to work in Paris uh, right. for several months with Eville. And I also went to visit Kipros Nicolaides and Kurt Hecker um, to see how people did things. And I was came back was able to um, set up a, a business plan and um, get the service funded. And we went from there, really. I don't know if you listened to my interview with Professor Katie Morris. You were mentioned in that interview, <laughs> uh, sort of very important to her career and, and where she came from. But also thinking there about that service then being handed on and, and making yes. sure that you've got succession planning for, yes. for something that's so high skilled and, and how, you, how on earth you do that. Yes, I mean, that takes takes um, quite a lot of thought. And you have to, I mean, obviously, people have to have an aptitude for doing it. And mm-hmm. you have to try and train people as they come along, people enter the programs at different, with different amounts of experience. But, I, yeah. but hopefully, um, the service through Katie and um, also from some of her slightly more junior colleagues are carrying forward that service and being able to perform fetal therapy in those areas. Can you talk a little bit about your experience of being a trainer? Mm-hmm. So I think, I mean, I've, I think that's been one of the most satisfying and important um, parts of my job, to be honest, mm-hmm. both to train and pass on um, experience and knowledge um, in an academic field, but also to subspecialty trainees as they come through. And you learn a lot from your trainees. I mean, Mm -hmm. as well as the the subspecialty trainees and clinical academics, which have been affiliated, that I've been responsible for for training with maternal fetal medicine, people like, as you mentioned, Katie Morris, uh, David Lazur, Jenny Tamblin have, have come through and been involved in different aspects of learning academia. But also we've, we quite early on set up uh, an international, we've made the Birmingham an international centre for training. And mm-hmm. we had subspecialty trainees coming from Hong Kong, from both the universities, University of Hong Kong and uh, Queen Mary's Hospital and also Chinese University of Hong Kong and those trainees still come across for a year or six months and we've had uh, trainees from different parts of Europe and also from South America so we've 
And you learn so much, I'll emphasize again, as a trainer, you learn so much by your open-minded trainees inquisitively asking you about thinking, why do you do it that way? Where I was such and such, we did it a different way. Why did you do it like that? What are the risks, you know, what are the benefits of doing it that way? And it makes you think and and reflect on how you do things. So I think um, the training of of subspecialists and uh, clinical academics has been a, a great pleasure. I think it's become much more objectively based, if you like, in terms of Mm -hmm. the assessment of training as you go through. And I think that in general is a very good thing. But that then means all of the infrastructure that goes with that, the uh, recording of of the training process um, takes more time than than it used to. But again, that's uh, in the most part uh, uh, for the benefit of everyone. Yeah. And you've also been involved in you were president of BMFMS and you've been lots of college roles and been on council. Yes. Um, so yes. you must have seen a lot of changes in training along the way as well. Yes, like I mean, I was, I was chairman of the subspecialty training committee and, uh, mm-hmm. and I was chair at the time when we moved, if you like, to uh, a much more objective review of being able to um, demonstrate evidence through the curriculum, a bit like an ARCP um, for subspecialists. That was um, introduced at a time when I was chairman um, of the Subspecialty Training Committee and also president of the British Paternal Feeding Medicine Society. So that's uh, that was a, a useful thing. And it also gave a lot of insights and, and learning for me as a trainer to see the different ways in which uh, people can be assessed and yeah. what the best ways of doing that is uh, uh, are. So I think that's that's been very useful. Okay. Is that the, the annual subspecialty yes. assessment? The sort of the Yes, it is. I mean, there's always been an national. assessment, but, but it used to be, right when I started, that you used to probably two, two um, accredited trainers used to go and visit the subspecialty trainee in their centre, mm-hmm. um, meet their trainers, and have a conversation and there was a matrix that was filled out of paper form it won't surprise you to know and part of it would be talking about the trainee but also talking about the training in that center and uh, it was relatively it was objective but it was relatively informal but over a period of time you got to travel around and to meet all of the or many of the the trainers and trainees going through those centres why you were doing assessments, where there is the the centralisation of that process means that you very rarely go to other centres to actually see trainees working in in those centres. And that's probably something that we've lost a little bit as as trainers being able to see how other people do things in other centres. But you hear about it. So I don't think there's much of a loss, really. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I've I've heard about these uh apocryphal visits that, that used to happen. <laughs> yes. I mean they were they again they were they were very sociable and, and pleasant, uh, but they were they were reflective of the time in which they uh-huh. took place. Um, yeah. and now there's a, a different way of uh, assessing the way that trainees are making progress during their subspecialty training and yeah. um that's more more objective and has a a bigger evidence base in terms of uh training and training assessment yeah if i was to look at your biography you have been involved in an awful lot of research 
lots yeah. and lots of different topics, fields, lots and lots of papers. I suspect a lot of people associate you now with genomics and, and what's what's evolved there. Do you think that's true? <laughs> well, I think uh, during my uh, research career, uh, I had I focused on several um, areas. So there was a clinical-based assessment of what we actually do in maternal fetal medicine, and that could be by retrospective evaluation, prospective studies, but increasingly by working with people in clinical trials units to formulate randomised controlled trials, and we did that yeah. with a psychoamniotic shunting for congenital blood neck obstruction. So very much clinically-based assessments of practice, and then laboratory-based work, which was focused upon working with scientific colleagues and focusing upon, for instance, the endocrinology of the placenta mm-hmm. um, and also in, uh, the immunology of the maternal decidual interface and the way that that affects or can be changed uh, both in maternal disease but also in fetal disease as well. So there were lots of laboratory-based papers that came out. And then, as you quite rightly say, in the last five years or so, a focus upon the new technologies that have been applied to genetics and genomics that affect Mm -hmm. prenatal diagnosis. And that uh, was really culminated in us working in a multidisciplinary team with uh, Matt Howells, uh, a group of clinical scientists that work within the Birmingham Women's Hospital, Dominic McMullen, Stephanie Allen, and also with other subspecialists like Lynn Chitty and getting funding from the Wellcome Trust to run the prospective page study to assess they use the, the prenatal diagnostic potential of exome sequencing in babies with congenital malformations. So, you know, there again, I, I, that sort of falls somewhere between a laboratory-based uh, research project and um, a clinical-based research project. But it, the work that came out of that and the publications that came out of that set the scenes to change clinical practice, and it has done so in terms of prenatal diagnosis and the assessment and workup of a baby that has congenital malformations. Yeah. And that's yeah. really what we want in um, research in maternal fetal medicine to demonstrate evidence-based practice that benefits both the fetus and the mother. Yeah. Um, and that's very important, I think. It must be incredible to have seen that journey through to now the, the R21 the pathway. Yes. And, it, and I guess, it again, I know that people say this a lot these days, but it's very, very true. I mean, one of the big practices, practice changes I've seen over the 30 years, if I want to round it up, um, <laughs> uh, that I've been in practice is the increasing use of multidisciplinary team working. And that's important clinically. It's also important in a research setting with different people from different uh, backgrounds coming in to give you the benefit of their experience of information. And that's only that broad church makes it very helpful and has led to, a, I think, a big improvement in the way that we do research in, uh, in maternal and fetal medicine going forward. Yeah. Is there anything that you're looking back most proud of? I think it's it's difficult to pick any one factor. I think 
I guess the obvious thing to focus on, for me to focus on, was setting up, as we've already talked about, the potential for a new fetal medicine service. Um, yeah. And although within King's, Kipros was was responsible for the initiation of fetoscopic laser ablation for twin-to-twin transfusion syndrome and working with Eve and uh, Kurt Hecker in the Harris Birthright Centre, bringing that to Birmingham and setting up the centre was was a lot of very hard work, but it was also one of my proudest clinical achievements. Yeah. Um, I think in terms of, of research and pushing forward the development of our uh, specialty, I think, you know, the randomised controlled trials to demonstrate evidence base of practice in fetal therapy has been very important, and I've been involved in several of those. I mentioned the Pluto study of psychoamniotic shunting, but also working with my colleagues in Holland um, in the Solomon studies and different techniques of fetoscopic laser ablation. Yeah. And I think, and more latterly, as I've said, looking at new technologies in prenatal diagnosis, all of those things have been, well, I've been very proud to be associated with. And then again, I've mentioned changes in practice, new technologies such as specific IgG receptor blockade uh, that can be delivered to the mother to um, ameliorate the effects of fetal anemia developing. And again, if that happens and um, the evidence base for that grows and it's shown um, to be a benefit, that again will be another very important chapter. And I'm proud to have been involved in a small part with that. Yeah, that's fantastic. Do you still scan or is that? Yes, no, I still still scan. (laughs) I do scan, obviously not as as much as I do, but when I do the clinics, um, uh, quite often there are the the patients are pregnant that are are coming to the feed medicine genetics clinic and I scan them. Uh-huh. I don't I'm not involved in invasive fetal therapy or yeah. or even prenatal diagnosis by uh, CVS or amniocentesis anymore yeah and do you scan left or right-handed I I can do both actually to be honest uh-huh. with you and that's uh that was over my work as being able to to do use different your both of your hands to scan when you're in a situation for fetal therapy has been a big benefit but for the most part I scan with my my right hand but I can use both uh, yeah <laughs> okay so are there any things that you you would like to share with people who are working in fetal medicine people who are wanting to maybe go into it or or starting their specialty training what what would your tips for them be well I think that it is a fantastically privileged position to work as a subspecialist in in this field I think you make a difference on a day-to-day basis, which is obviously there are wonderful highs when, you, when you're able to treat babies in, in utero that have a potentially lethal condition and turn it around and you, at the end of the process, have a well mother and a live and well baby. That's a wonderful high. But of course, there are also lows associated with that. All of the therapies that I've mentioned carry risk of miscarriage and pregnancy loss, which also is a a constant stress, if you like, in the background when you're actually doing this kind of work. But it's a great privilege to do this kind of work. So I think it's very rewarding. I think, the, to be honest with you, the application of research and development within the subspecialty has been something that's run through 
the subspecialty of maternal fetal medicine, like a, like writing through a stick of rock. You know, it's sort of right from the beginning, there have been new developments. And many of the um, original people that um, became subspecialists were also clinical academics. And that was even the case when I was being appointed as well. That isn't so much the case now, mm-hmm. but many subspecialists that um, are accredited and work in the NHS as consultants in maternal fetal medicine often interact with clinical academics separately or they're involved in multi-centre studies and uh, have an understanding of how research works. So I think, again, that melding of um, the clinical specialty of maternal fetal medicine and academia is continuing and has led to quite marked progresses in the field. And I think that's very exciting and there's no reason why it wouldn't continue. So I think, you know, embarking to be a uh, a specialist, a subspecialty trainee to do this kind of work is very fulfilling and very exciting, and it will remain exciting going forward. And if you had, if you had seen someone who was struggling, someone maybe at their um, through the subspect committee, and, and they were sort of struggling to get through, on was there anything that you particularly found useful to help help people in that situation, or your own trainees well, even? Well, I think I well, I suppose there's several things to say about that. So everyone doesn't have either the same interest in things or the same dexterity in doing things. And so different people take different amounts of time to learn and to reach the, the thresholds for being able to perform invasive procedures, for instance. So that's individual. But even Within the specialty of maternal and fetal medicine, you've, you've, you touched on it, you hinted at it, but you didn't actually say it. There is maternal medicine, there is mm-hmm. fetal medicine, and there are those that do both. And it's a broad enough church for people to find a role which suits yeah. them. And I think uh, we've for a long time in, in, in the training program within the RCOG, there's been discussion about how we should progress the training in maternal fetal medicine. Should it be a generic maternal and fetal medicine two years with with, um, research exemption or three years? Mm -hmm. Um, And should it be that you focus all your time in maternal medicine and fetal medicine to reach a high proficiency in both of those? Or do you have a generic understanding and also skill base in both maternal and fetal medicine but you if you like choose to master in what your eventual interest will be so for instance in a two-year program you could have a generic one first year where you do both maternal and fetal medicine or and reach core competencies and then in the third year you could do uh, choose to either focus on maternal medicine or fetal medicine and that might you know, give more options to trainees going through yeah. um, because not everyone wants to be doing uh, cutting edge maternal uh, fetal medicine and fetal therapy. And not everyone wants to be seeing patients with complex medical problems and managing from that point of view, you know, managing patients from that point of view. And so I think, as I've said, the, the church of maternal fetal medicine, certainly in the UK, is broad enough still for trainees to find a niche and to have a, a productive role, and useful role as a specialist within the whole specialty. So yeah. that's what I would say to people that are struggling. 
Yeah, thank you. I'm, I'm actually glad you brought up that big elephant in the subspecialty training room, which is still very much there, having recently been on the subspecialty training committee at the college. And one thing I'm, I think maybe not be obvious to subspecialty trainees is, although there's a standardised curriculum, the way that's delivered in the different units is quite different. And the way yes. that that balance between the maternal and fetal is held within different units is also different. Yes. And so you're, again, hinting at something that is true in that you can do maternal fetal medicine subspecialist training in different centres around the country, and you can come out of that process leading with more of an interest, for instance, in certain aspects of paternal medicine from one centre and fetal medicine from the other or both. And there is a it is a cosmopolitan training scheme, if you like, in that way. Now, whether or not that should change, I mean, I already mentioned the the one year of generic maternal fetal medicine training, then the two separate second years where you do fetal or maternal medicine. If you made, a, if, if I'm playing devil's advocate, there are benefits and, and non-benefits to changing a, a training program in that way. But one of the benefits would be that one, trainees would get some degree of choice in what they, how they wanted to shape their future career. And also when you, you know, if you if you make the prospective decision to do your second year in fetal medicine and therapy, then when you're applying for consultant jobs, the people that are appointing you know what comes on the tin. You've made that decision to do that. Um, whereas if you've made a decision to do mainly maternal medicine for your second year, then people know where your interests lie and train. And there will always be, as I've, as I've emphasised this afternoon by talking, there will be people that want to do both. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you. You've given a lot of your time. Um, is there anything else that you were hoping to impart or share? Or <laughs> no, I think, I mean, um, I suppose the... The big thing that I'm not sure I've been very successful at is the, the work-life balance situation and <laughs> yes, being able to decide, decide <laughs> um, not to let your job take over your whole life. And I think uh-huh. that can be quite difficult sometimes. I think it was more difficult of people of my generation because when you first were trying to get into the subspecialty training scheme, it almost required total commitment to do that, you know, complete yeah. commitment to go through and do that. And then that also was an ethos going forward when I was a, a young, if you like, consultant starting off. But I think it is very important to have a work-life balance and uh-huh. to, you know, cherish your family and your interests outside what is your your job, albeit a very, very exciting and interesting job. So I think finding, you know, there is, we're in a much, I think I'm probably a space now where subspecialists and consultants do balance their work life better than they, than they used to. And I think that's a very admirable thing. And also yeah. helps, you know, I'm, I've emphasised, I suppose, at the beginning today that I haven't actually retired, uh-huh. but eventually you will retire. And there has to be hopefully more to you as a person than than the job that you did for those years. Obviously, your personality and the way that you are and everything that you've done is coloured by your working life, but by no means is the, the majority of you. And I think to remember that all the way through your professional career is very important. Yeah, thank That's you. A, 
yeah, a reflection, I suppose, looking back. No, it's, it's very valuable. And I, I know feedback people that have given about the previous podcast episodes is, is actually they've really valued understanding a bit more about work-life balance and some very overtly successful people and, and how you might manage that. Yeah. Well, it, it's not easy, I, I think, not even yeah. not even working in today's NHS or today's university structure, but uh, it's certainly it's facilitated more. Yeah, grand. Okay, well, thank you. Thank you so much, Mark, for your time. It's It's been really lovely talking to you. It's been a pleasure, Jane, this afternoon. Thank you very much. And uh, I really have enjoyed uh, discussing my path, if you like, through the what has been. It has indeed. I know it's an overused term, but it has really been a, a privilege to work with so many people professionally and to look after so many pregnant women and their families during a career. It has been uh, a wonderful experience and one that I, I've enjoyed immensely. I really loved talking to Professor Mark Kilby. I was properly starstruck. He's one of those people I've heard talked about by one name, Kilby, like a fetal medicine celebrity. I'm so very grateful to him for sharing his experience and wisdom as he embarks on this new stage in his career. Please excuse the odd crackle of feedback. I hope it wasn't too distracting. Thank you for listening to this episode of Conversations in Fetal Medicine. I really hope you've enjoyed it. See the show notes for Mark's bio and further information about some of the topics we discussed. Please email any feedback or suggestions for future interviewees or topics to conversationsinfetalmed at gmail.com. And if you can, please rate, subscribe and even share the podcast with other people you think might enjoy it. 